if you're able now uh, and are to stand as we read um, God's word. Good morning. Our passage is found today in Luke 8, verses 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned at once, and she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. And before we dive into our word from the Lord this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we have two very simple requests. First, we ask that you'd be among your people this morning. We are desperate to feel your presence. And Father, we also ask that you would take these, these feeble words from the meditations of my heart and that you would empower them by your spirit to conform us to the image of your son, to strengthen us, to comfort us, and to glorify yourself among us. Would you do these things? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What would you do to make sure that your child had a good life? Suppose that there was a resource that if your child had it would greatly increase their quality of life and their chances for success. The only catch is it's a limited resource. Only a few people will have access to it. What would you be willing to do to make sure that your child was one of the few? Well, if you were Lori Laughlin of Full House fame, you would be willing to give away hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribe money. 
in case you missed the story a few years ago, Laughlin and her husband were caught bribing individuals to get their daughter into USC. And my guess is that she would have no sympathy among us because, after all, there are systems in place, GPAs and ACT scores, to make sure that the most deserving individuals gain access to the limited resource of a premier college education. But what if your child was too far down the line? What if your child didn't qualify for the limited resource? What would you be willing to do to give them a chance? My guess is that if you were desperate enough, you just might be willing to cheat the system, which is what happens in our text this morning. We are introduced to a woman in desperate need of a scarce resource, the healing power of Jesus. And her drastic plan to gain access to it and the consequences that follow reveal to us a troubling truth about Jesus and the way we live our lives. And so let's just dive right in, shall we? So our text opens with Jesus returning to Galilee. Uh, and at his arrival, there is a crowd waiting for him, much like a, a, a crowd would have been waiting for the Jonas brothers to arrive. And just like when they would step out of their limousine, the crowd mobbed in around Jesus, pressing in on him, wanting to each have a piece of him. And among that crowd was a woman. Now, the text doesn't tell us what her name is, but she left such an impression upon the church that down through the years, it's taken it upon itself to name her. And they've given her the name Bernice. And Bernice has a tragic situation. She is suffering from a discharge of blood, a bleeding disorder. Now, that would be inconvenient in our society, but it was much, much worse in hers because of Jewish purity laws. Uh, you may know that uh, at this time in the Israelite community, they were very, very concerned about ritual purity or whether they were clean or unclean. And the reason that was so important to them was because their state of clean or unclean determined whether they could be in God's presence. And while they took this very serious, we have to understand that being ritually impure wasn't a sin. Uh, it just meant that you couldn't be in God's presence during that state. Uh, it's kind of like if I were to, to go outside and do work in the garden and I got dirt and mud all over my shoes. Uh, I wouldn't be allowed back in our house. Not because I did anything wrong, but because my dirty, muddy shoes have no place in a clean home. But the solution is quite simple, right? I just take off my shoes or I clean them. But what if my shoes were perpetually dirty. What if just there was no way to clean them? Well, then I would be in the doghouse, literally, because there'd be no way for me to get back inside. And that is what Bernice is dealing with right now. See, according to Leviticus 15.25, if a woman has a discharge of blood, she will be impure as long as the bleeding lasts. And we're told in verse 43 that she has been suffering from this disorder for 12 years. 12 years she has been cut off from the temple and the God who resides there. 12 years she has been ostracized from society because according to Levitical law, she's just like a leper. Anything she touches becomes unclean. 
And so it's not surprising that she would spend all of her money on physicians trying to find a a potential cure, a natural remedy, an experimental trial that would heal her. And with each failed attempt, she would sink deeper and deeper into despair. But then she hears about this guy named Jesus who was healing people that were previously thought to be incurable. And she knows that she has to try and see him. But she still has a problem. If he touches her, he will become unclean. And in her experience, no one is interested in doing that. And so she needs to figure out a way to touch him without him knowing it. And our crowd gave her the perfect chance. We're told in verse 44 that she comes up behind Jesus and she touches the fringe of his garment. And in that instant, she is healed. Also in that instant, Jesus stops and begins asking, hey, who just touched me? And if I was Bernice, I would start panicking because I didn't get away with it. I'd start thinking to myself, oh no, he knows he's going to be angry that I made him unclean. But then logic would kick in. Well, I'm in a pretty large crowd. There is no way he's going to be able to tell that it was me who did it which is the point Peter raises to Jesus in verse 45, that everyone is pressing in around you, Jesus. How can we figure out who has and has not touched you? But Jesus wouldn't let it go. He was insistent that that like a battery expelling energy to start a car, he had felt power leave him. And he wanted to know where it went. And that's when Bernice knew that he knew it was her. And so she did the only sensible thing. She confessed everything. She confessed her problem. She confessed how she had touched him and how she had been instantly cured. But rather than be angry, he simply said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It was an absolute miracle that once again proved that Jesus has power over disease. It was a miracle that restored a woman to to society and also to her God. There was just one problem. She cheated. Bernice cut the line. See, Jesus wasn't just out for a stroll when Bernice intercepted him. He was on a mission. Verse 41 tells us that within that crowd was a man named Jairus, and he too had a tragic situation. His 12-year-old daughter was dying. Luke also tells us that Jairus is a synagogue ruler, which really correlates nicely to a local senior pastor, someone who has devoted his entire life to serving God and the community. And if Jesus' healing power was the top thrill dragster, Jairus' life and occupation would have been the fast pass. It would have put him right in the front of the line. And Jesus apparently agrees because he goes with Jairus rather than the countless others who would have been seeking healing from him. But then that woman intercepted Jesus. And we're told in verse 49 that while Jesus was still speaking to her, someone from the ruler's house comes and says, your your daughter is dead. Because Bernice cheated the system, Jairus' daughter died. And I want you to try to put yourself in his shoes. What must he be feeling right now? Well, we might think that he's angry right? How dare she cut the line? 
Or maybe, maybe he became indignant whenever he realized who she was and remembered that she had been suffering from this disorder for over a decade. Why did she have to cut the line now? Or maybe his anger was aimed more toward Jesus. Jesus, can't you tell which is more important? A 12-year-old girl who's about to die who has her whole life in front of her and a non-life-threatening bleeding disorder? Or maybe, maybe he wasn't thinking anything. Maybe he was just overcome by the despair of losing his only daughter. But we actually don't have to speculate on what Jairus was feeling because at the moment, Jesus tells us in verse 50, after he overhears the report, he says to Jairus, do not fear. Do not fear? I kind of expected Jesus to have more EQ than this, I had to go and look up what the five stages of grief are, and it turns out fear is not one of those stages. But it's Jesus, right? He has the correct answer. So our question has to be, so what is Jairus afraid of? Because he's not afraid of losing his daughter. She's already died. So what is he so afraid of? And I want to propose to you that he is afraid because Jesus broke the system. He is afraid because Jesus broke the system. Let me explain. Did you notice how everyone is treating Jesus, specifically his power in this passage? They are treating him like he is a scarce resource. And honestly, Jesus is kind of acting like he's a scarce resource. And I'm certain that there are many people seeking to be healed by Jesus in this crowd. And yet, Jesus doesn't heal any of them. Instead, it seems like he's conserving his power for specific times, for, for really qualified individuals. And if Jesus and his power are a scarce resource, that means that there is a system in place in our passage to determine where that power gets spent, because that's just how humans work. You know this, of course, if you've ever plugged in your phone to charge overnight and it didn't charge because you have to make some decisions, right? How am I gonna use that last 20% of battery? Chances are you aren't gonna play Candy Crush. You aren't going to stream an episode over your lunch break. No, you're going to save that battery to make that important phone call or to run Google Maps so that you don't get lost. See, anytime there is a, a, a scarce resource, we immediately impose a system for determining who or what gets that resource. And I believe such a system is in play here. Notice how no one can test Jesus going with Jairus, even though many others would have wanted to use the battery. And I think that's because they all knew the system. And in the system, Jairus was at the front of the line. His life and occupation made him the most qualified person there to receive God's power. But instead, it went to an unclean woman and his daughter died. And herein lies the problem with the system. It doesn't work. It's broken. The times that seem like the best opportunity for God to act, he doesn't show up. And the people who seem most qualified, who should be in the front of the line, get passed over. And why is that? Why doesn't the system work? Ultimately, it comes down to God. That God is unwilling to follow the system. He's the reason the system doesn't work as intended. And there's really only two possible reasons for why that is. 
One is that Jesus can't do, uh, can't help them, that his power is limited. He just doesn't have enough juice to both heal Bernice and Jairus' daughter. The problem with that is that over and over again, he has been demonstrating how much power he actually has. And let's be honest, whenever the system fails us, whenever God fails to show up, our first assumption is not that God was unable to help us, that his hands were tied somehow. Our assumption is that he was unwilling to help us, that he didn't want to. And I think this is the assumption that, that triggers uh, the counsel that Jairus received in verse 49, to stop bothering Jesus. Not because Jesus didn't have the power to help, but because Jesus clearly wasn't willing to help. I mean, look at Jesus' actions so far. He let an innocent girl die because he was insistent on having a post-op conversation with Bernice. He's demonstrated that he's far more interested in pursuing his own purposes than in doing what the system says he should do. And perhaps you've experienced that before. Perhaps you were, or maybe you are right now, in a situation where you need a miracle. You need God to show up. And you look at your life, what you've done, and you say, I, I think I'm pretty qualified. I should be pretty close to the front of the line. And yet God does nothing. And in the midst of the confusion, the grief, the frustration of that situation, fear sets in. Because you realize that you need God's power. But there is no guaranteed way, no reliable system to access it. But the rest of our text actually has some good news for us. It turns out God actually didn't break the system. The system was already broken. See, the system is built on a false reality. And in the remainder of our text, Jesus is going to undo that reality and provide us a solution to the broken system, which is what he invites Jairus to do in verse 50. Once again, Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Jesus tells Jairus, to have faith. Now, faith is one of those words that we use so much that we often struggle to define what it is. And faith in Scripture really has three components to it. Knowledge, because you have to know something to believe in it. Uh, acceptance, because you have to agree with that knowledge. And then this third element we could call uh, trust or total dependence. And if you don't have all three elements, biblically speaking, you do not have faith. Let me explain what I mean. I want you to imagine that you are on the American side of Niagara Falls. And you are looking across to the Canadian side, and you'd love to go over there because you hear it's far prettier. But, you know, COVID, the borders are closed. So that's not happening anytime soon. And so you're standing there longingly looking across the side when this guy named Charles walks up to you. And you get talking with Charles, and you realize you've seen him before. He was on the news a few times because he tightroped across Niagara Falls with someone on his back. And so you get to talking and your desire to cross comes up. He's like, hey, did you know that I tightroped across Niagara Falls? And you'd read the article. Yeah, yeah, I knew that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, but do you believe that I can cross Niagara Falls? I'm tightroped. Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Hop on my back. I'm taking you right now. 
And whether you hop on his back or not determines whether you have faith, right? Because you can know he can do it. You can believe he can do it. But until you are trusting and totally depending on him to do it, you don't really have faith in him. And that's what the Bible is talking about here. That's what Jesus is calling Jairus to do right now, to stop trusting in the system and to completely trust in God, to believe that God generously and powerfully acts for our good. But just like hopping on Charles's back would be very difficult, so it is very difficult to actually believe that God is that generous. Because deep down, you and I are unconvinced that God has our best in mind. We are suspicious that God has been withholding some things from us. That is, after all, why you and I created the system. Because we needed a method to pry open the stingy hand of God. We needed an objective way to prove that we deserve what God has been withholding. And what Jesus is inviting us to do in our text is to abandon that system, to step out of the line and to believe in his good, generous power towards us. And this is what Jairus does. He takes Jesus the rest of the way to his house. He closes the door on the mocking laughter of the mourners. He leads Jesus, Peter, James, and John to his daughter's bedside. And to his amazement, watches Jesus raise his daughter from the dead. It's as Jesus said, faith in him, not the system, made his daughter well. And here's Luke's point. God has unlimited power to accomplish his purposes. He can overcome nature, demons, disease, even death. Nothing can stand in the way of him accomplishing his purposes, which include your good, your best interest. But please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that this is a health and wealth message, that if you just have faith, God will give you everything you want. That is just slapping a a new coat of paint on the same broken system. No, what Jesus is inviting us to do is to trust in the generosity of God to stop trying to leverage our qualifications and force God to adhere to our man-made system and instead believe that he leverages all of his power for your good, even when it doesn't look like it. But can we be honest with one another? Several times in our lives, that doesn't seem like it's true. Several times it will seem like God's generous power is going everywhere but in your life. So how are we supposed to believe that God acts generously toward us when our worlds are built on scarcity and systems? We have to see and experience God's unlimited power poured out for us. That's the Apostle Paul's point in Romans chapter eight. He he tells us that God's generous power is at work in our lives to make all things work together for our good. And he can make such a bold statement because God is for us. And here's how he knows. Verse 32, because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, in Jesus, we have all the proof we need that God uses all of his power for our best interest. 
And so brothers and sisters, are you broken down by a broken system? Are you scared by the false scarcity? Then I invite you to abandon the lie, to place your faith in the abundance of God's power demonstrated and directed toward you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are both all-powerful and all-good, that you are not a, a stingy God who withholds, but that you gave all, including your Son, for us. Father, I confess that it is very easy to try to force you to adhere to the system, to list why I deserve something. Would you forgive us of that, Father? Would you, would you forgive our lack of trust in your goodness and generosity toward us? And Father, would you give us eyes to see your great and generous love and kindness lavished upon us in Jesus? Father, would you impress these truths upon our heart? Would you declare your great love and kindness towards us as we sing your praises? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.